I doubt if there is any problem, social, political, or economic, that would not melt away before the fire of such a spiritual undertaking. Okay, well, welcome to another fantastic edition of the Lamp and Lucker podcast. Um, I was just thinking today. I was thinking. Is society no longer decadent? Oh, no, society is always <laughs> decadent because everything yes. is passing away. No, but I was thinking today, I was like, I was like, to what can I compare myself? I was like, you know what? Other grad students, they would need a backhoe to keep up with all the groundbreaking research I'm doing. That's what uh-huh. they No, just kidding. I um, like that. I like that. I like <laughs> that. No, I was thinking like, oh, that's a pretty good diss. Like, guys, get a backhoe to keep up. Never mind. Um, <laughs> as I struggle through some Latin, barely understanding it. Um, well, Andrew's back. He had yeah. some escapades over the summer. Um, I did. In southern places. Central you America, do? yeah. What'd you do there? Yeah, I decided to fly down to Central America. Um right after the country uh to which i went opened back up from covid lockdowns and then two weeks after we left they shut back down again which is just like crazy yeah so when we were there there was like a lot of covid restrictions um i was there with some other seminarians and we went there to do immersion spanish we went to uh learn uh spanish so we were doing one-on-one tutoring eight hours a day uh, eight hours a day, five hours a day. Excuse yeah, eight hours a day. That's intense. Uh, yeah. uh, five hours a day of one-on-one tutoring from, excuse me, from eight in the morning until one o'clock in the afternoon. And then our afternoons were mostly free, but to be perfectly honest, uh, I slept a lot in the afternoons. Cause like after five hours of trying to speak and think in another language, you're just like, just totally wiped out. Yeah. Just totally drained, like emotionally, psychologically. Um, and then, I would, um, normally I do my holy hours in the morning. Um, but, um, I switched my holy hours to be, I was doing, I was praying from four, four thirty to five fifteen um, every day. And then we'd pray Vespers as seminarians and then we'd eat some dinner and then we do, and then we, and then I had homework. So, so five hours a day. Uh, and then the afternoons were really spent. Um, some guys kind of explored the city we were in. What city um, was it? Or we were in, I'm just saying. Yeah, we were we were in Antigua. Um, uh-huh. So, and some guys some guys explored around the, there, and um, I I was much more of a homebody, and and it, it was um, it was interesting. Yeah, it's very um, it's actually one of the nicer cities in Guatemala, but um, the uh, that like we there was some funny things, right? Like we couldn't flush toilet paper down the toilet, for example, because the septic system couldn't handle it. Whoa. So you so you. Uh, you have a waste paper basket there, uh, quite literally a waste paper basket uh, in the uh, bathroom there. Um, couldn't swallow any of the tap water. Duh, we were you can only drink bottled water in Guatemala. So um, so when you're taking a shower, you're either spitting constantly or you keep your mouth very firmly closed. Uh, different seminarians had different philosophies on that. Uh, some guys would like shower like with their lips like very tight. Uh, and then uh but some of us like i would just like i was just spitting constantly uh and then seminaries like never mind i'm just i've never had that issue even in america (laughs) like oh like getting getting shower water yeah no never i'm just like oh okay Uh, uh, okay Uh, for 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 point number one i don't believe you point number two (laughs) (laughs) next time next time you're in the shower next time you're in the shower just like notice like just know like just see just see because i think you'll be surprised i think you'll find that you'll have 
I think you'll find you'll, you'll have more water in your mouth from the shower than you think. Okay. Um, so anyway, yeah, I never thought about it before. I won't take your word said, for it. I'll, I'll check. Yeah, do, no, dude, that's what I'm saying. Do the experiment. Listen to um, me now. Believe me later on. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, um, where we were there for eight weeks and, um, it was an experience. Um, it was an experience to see how I'd never been out of the country before. So for me, this is my first international trip ever. Um, and it was, it was an experience to see how other people and other people country, uh, in other countries live, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, one of the, one of the things that I really, um, one of the things that I really came to appreciate is as an American, um, we have, we have so many privileges that we just take for granted. And they really are privileges. Like one of the things I was talking to my teacher about was I was asking her if she ever wanted to travel to America someday. And uh, well, the first thing she said that in Spanish, of course. Right. And then, and then the first thing, how the first you, thing she said, she said was, in no. Spanish? I said, uh, I said, uh, tu eres, uh, no, tu estas interesante uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, uh no, trajer, tra, uh, tra, yeah, tra, trajer a Estados Unidos. Uh, and she was like, no, no, no say, no nada, no nada. I'm like, por qué? Es muy, es muy interesante, uh, muchas interesantes lugares en, en, uh, en Estados Unidos, uh, mm-hmm. muchas latinos en Estados Unidos, uh, mm-hmm. you know, es muy interesante, sí. Uh, and she was like, she was like, no. Las personas en Estados Unidos, muy loco, muy loco. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, she said, uh, she said, and I was like, I was like, por ejemplo. And she was like, oh, uh, muy, 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 muy uh, fáciles uh, ejemplos. Um, uh, Mujeres, uh, quienes, quienes pensar uh, son uh, hombres. Muy loco, muy loco. Mujer, mujer es mujer. Hombre es hombre. No posiblemente, no posiblemente para, para cambiar. Sí. I was like, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, she was like, oh and I said, and I was like, uh, este problema aquí o no? She was like, she was like, no, pero like, you know, there's, you know, mm-hmm. she's like, basically it's, it's, it's kind of a small you know, there's there 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 are a quote unquote persecuted minority in um, mm-hmm. in Guatemala. So who's a persecuted um, minority? Uh, oh, um, do you guys yeah. speak Spanish, Thomas? Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I was following some of it. I was following yeah, most yeah, of yeah. it. It was funny. I was actually following um, most of it. So, um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, so she was like, "No, like you people are really crazy up there." Um, but you know, so like just taking uh, so so. But then the other thing she said was, uh, and this kind of goes back to my point about American privilege is she said, um, it's very, it would be very hard for me to visit there. And I said, uh, passport, I was like, passporte, like, uh, el passporte is, you know, like muy caro, like very expensive passports, really expensive. And she was like, see, sí, but, um, the, the real thing is, is that it just like takes forever to be even cleared to enter the United States. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm. and I was like, you couldn't just visit. If you had a passport, you couldn't just visit for like, um, a couple weeks or something. And she was like, no. I was like, mm. really? Like, and I said, well, like I came here. I just like got on a plane and I asked when I came here. And she was like, see, sí. yeah, you know, tu eres, tu eres americano. And I was like, <laughs> exactly. oh, okay. Like yeah. I'm an American. So, yeah. 
um, that means that I'm able to travel anywhere in the world just with an American passport. Yep. I can go just about, ver- yep. just about, just about. Yep. Yeah. 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 I can go yeah. just about anywhere and everybody has to let me in. Um, yep. and, um, and so that was, so, so anyway, so that was like one thing. Um, the other thing was just like, um, in America, I just saw this, uh, there was, I just saw this study today, actually, we had, this came up in our class on Catholic social teaching Americans yes, as a people, um, we, we spend, um, the average American household spends 10% of its income on food. Okay. Whoa. Now that's Americans across the board, right? So there's sure. lots of people in America who spend a lot more than that. But like, yeah. I think like a lot of us here grew up in big families, like in my, and my family was a yeah. lot more than 10% was going to groceries. Yeah. But for a lot of America, for most Americans, um, 10% of their income is going to groceries. Um, in somewhere like Guatemala, it's like 40 to 50% of their money is going to groceries and 40% and 40 to 50% of their money is going to rent or mortgage. Um, shelter and food. And And that's all that, and that's, that's, that's all that most of them can pay for. Um, the vast majority of the vast, vast majority of Guatemalans do not have internet. The vast Mm -hmm. majority of Guatemalans, um, you know, their, their, their cell phone plans are very basic, even though they do have smartphones, if they need to use the internet, they go to a coffee shop or they go to, you know, one of these places, but like, but even the coffee shops in Antigua, right. You, I would go to a coffee shop and I would spend the equivalent of about two American dollars, maybe a little less, maybe like 175 American dollars on like an amazing cup of coffee. Wow. I'm in Guatemala. I'm going, I'm spending $2 on like this, just an incredible cup of coffee. Yeah. Whereas for them, like that amount of money, it's like $20 for a cup of coffee. Wow. So um, we just spent like someone's like entire week paycheck. Yeah. So like, no, so like my, my teacher, I asked my teacher how much she made a week. And I was like, uh, I asked my teacher how much she made um a week and then i did the math and i was like i went to a brewery with the other seminarians last night and like we spent like like i bought like i spent as much money on beer as you make in a day and i went and i just like had a couple beers and i was just like whoa now a lot of that is because a lot of the stuff like a lot of the restaurants in antigua because antigua is a tourist town Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of people who vacation there from first world countries. It's like a really popular for like people from um, Europe, like ah, Europeans yeah. love Sorry. Antigua apparently. Mm-hmm. So um, where, which, which uh, Europeans like, so when we left, there was a bunch of people from France and mm-hmm. England who showed up mm-hmm. like a bunch of tourists from France and England. the last week we were there, a bunch of tourists from France and England showed up. So, um, so anyway, so, it was really, that was like a really humbling thing to realize how little money my yeah. teacher was making. Um, and she had like, it was like, it's like a decent job. Right. Like that's what her yeah. college degree was in. Her college degree was in teaching Spanish as a second language. Right. Um, yeah. So it's like, it was like the equivalent of an associate. She had like the equivalent of an so- associate's degree from right. um, university in Guatemala city. But that was, that was what it was, was teaching Spanish as a second language is what her degree was in. Um, so, um, yeah, so that was like something that was kind of, um, a little bit, um, 
humbling, you know, it's just to yeah. see how far the money went. Um, the other thing is just the other thing that probably the hardest part about Guatemala for me, um, one of the hardest parts about Guatemala for me was seeing Guatemalan priests, um, and the way that they treat their people. Um, Guatemalan priests tend to be very arrogant, um, mm. and they're very hard on people. They give hard penances in the confessional and they are not patient with cultural sins. Like there's sins in, in our cultures, right. That are really normal. And that priests in the confessional need to like, um, minister to with tenderness and mercy. Um, so like in our culture, for example, if there was a priest who was giving out really harsh penances, whenever a teenage boy confessed viewing pornography, we would see that as kind of weird, right? Mm -hmm. We would see yeah. it as kind of a weird, we would be like, well, you're, this is like a sin that's like everywhere and that yeah. everybody, virtually everybody at some point in their life struggles with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and and so person, it's like 30% of the internet or something at this point. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. And if somebody is, um, conscious enough of that it is wrong that they're willing to confess it right like it yeah i think that they're they're already like most of the way there most people don't even like right. aren't even at that point right so right so that's so so things so like you have sins that are like just very culturally kind of normal that and that's not to say they're okay right they're not right. they're sin they're sinful and they're and they're and they are destructive and many of them are mortally sinful um but like a lot of the priests in Guatemala, um, just from talking to um, the teachers in Guatemala, like um, a lot of the Catholics in Guatemala, especially women, um, like don't go to confession almost ever um, because they mm. just don't want to be yelled at. They just don't want to be, they don't want to be like super vulnerable with somebody and then have that person um, come down on them like a ton of bricks. Interesting. Um, they just like, that's just really difficult. Um, so actually it was kind of funny. We had an American priest who visited, who was a young guy, younger than me. He was uh, 26. Um, he was, he'd only been ordained for about a month. He came down and visited uh, for a couple of days. And when he showed up, a bunch of the teachers at the school went to confession for the first time in decades. Holy wow. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, so was there any awesome. negative, was there any negative take on you guys then? Cause like, you're all studying to be priests. No, they, and they're like, Oh, you're going to be, end up being one of the, kind of these a-holes who just, you know, mm -hmm. makes people feel like shit. No, was they, that or was it? No, more? they really, um, I mean, there's a couple teachers who really don't like the church. Um, but only a couple generally, that's, but that's an old Catholic was, tradition, right? You go after right, the middle right, ages, right, there's right. a bunch of people who don't like the church. Like the church. Right, right. <laughs> uh, old venerable Catholic, church. old venerable Catholic church to be angry at the church. Um, yeah. So the, um, um, so for example, um, no, they, they view it, they view it as so many, like my teacher, for example, like she viewed it as this huge privilege that she had been teaching seminarians for a decade. Like she just thought that was awesome. And she was so grateful and she was, uh, I think it's really good for them to see that priests and other play, like the seminarians, like the men who are going to be priests in another uh, country are like really kind and gentle and genuine. And um, see, that's how you should have convinced her to come to the United States. Easy penances in the confessional. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to be like, say three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers and your Father. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so 
uh, Andrew, was there any cultural shock between did like the Guatemalan priests kind of know what they were getting when they were interacting with you guys, or was there a little bit of tension because of that uh, difference in approach? We didn't interact with them a lot. Uh Um, The only priest we interacted with a lot was the priest who said, we all stayed at a convent Mm -hmm. and um, there was a priest, the chaplain for the convent was a good priest. He was a religious priest. A lot of the religious are pretty good. Um, It's the secular priests who tend to be a little bit of a problem. Um, also historically, uh, uh, a normal thing, right? Um, I, and, I mean, uh, well, it's com- that's the complaint against the secular priest. And I appreciate the fact that you use the secular priest, which is a term that's been dead for the past, like 500 years. Um, yeah. but yeah, that, but yeah, that was coming from a monastic source and I don't know, you right. can't, tr- you can't always trust those monks when they're mad. About yeah. It, yeah. That's true. Priest. Yeah. So that was hard. That was hard. Yeah. And, um, and it was, I mean, the, the trip itself was not like it was definitely a stressful and uh anxiety filled experience for me. I mean, I was very anxious a lot, um, just really trying to like really trying to study and really trying to absorb the Spanish and trying to not just survive. I think that's mm-hmm. like, cause like when you get into a survival mode, get locked into like, I just have to get through today. And that's like really not healthy because um, after you do that, like 30 times, it just gets really, really hard to like, Mm. keep telling yourself that. So Guatemala for me was like an experience of like really trying not to fall into that kind of thinking. Um, Cause like, I don't, I'm not a big travel person. I don't travel often. Um, I, I really like it when, um, I'm able to just uh, be where I am and be with people. Um, You know, when we all were in college together, right? Like Mm -hmm. part of the awesomeness of the friendships, right? That we have and that we developed there was like, for me, especially it felt like um, we're just sitting around being with each other. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go do something. We don't have to, we don't have to go see a movie. We don't have to go canoeing on the Shenandoah. We don't have to like, go do all these things. We can just be with each other as brothers. Uh, and I think that's, that's like the big, um, that's, that's, that I think is something that I just really thrive in. And so to like, to travel to another country, to be in a totally foreign environment, to be surrounded by people I don't know. Um, now I did know some of the seminarians pretty well. And Mm I, one of my closest, couple of my closest seminarian friends were with me down there, but, um, uh, like I was not, it was not an experience in which I thrived. Uh, and there were other seminarians who were like one friend of mine, um, like just loved going into the city, going on adventures, like mm-hmm. trying to find new places to see, trying to like, mm-hmm. and like, I just like that just really stressed me out like that. Like I couldn't, I did not go out into the city nearly as much as many of the guys because I, and if I was going to go, I like had, I'm like, I'm going to this place to get this thing. And then I'm coming back. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of wandering around and like looking at stuff, like not appealing at all to me. Um, And um, I think part of that had to do with the fact it was a third world. I think part of it had to do with the fact that, um, that I, that I don't speak, that I can't just talk to somebody on the street. Uh, you know, toward the end of the summer, I could talk to like a little bit to people. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it, it, it was, it was, 
it was definitely the hardest summer of seminary for me so far. Really? Um, yeah. We're on a tropical paradise and that's the hardest. Man. Yeah, that was definitely that's the a hardest. weird definition of hardest. So it's actually not particularly, it's actually where we were, especially because we were way up in the mountains. Antigua is really high up. It's yeah. like higher than Denver. Um, um, it actually uh, was not uh, particularly, it was actually not particularly <laughs> tropical. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. Oh. I, had to, I had to make the joke. Is that oh. what you were doing? <laughs> exactly. yeah, right. yeah. No worry. You, man, sounds like you were paranoid. You just have bad dreams, man. Yeah. I find you different strain. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, Clark. Go on. So you were up no, in no. the, no. So it actually like uh, most mornings it was in the low fifties and then, um, most days it didn't really get much above 70, 75 at the most. So it actually, where we were, it was not particularly tropical. Right. Um, so anyway, that was, no. it was beautiful. It was a beautiful place and, um, there were beautiful sights, but it was, it was not a, yeah, I definitely did not see it as a vacation. I saw it as like very difficult, arduous work. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, it was hard. It was definitely hard. And I was hard to, I found it hard to pray. Like it was hard for me to pray. I just felt like out of my element, like not, you know, um, I also realized that I really don't like Baroque that much because everything is Baroque there. <laughs> and I realized I just... That's what I realized in Italy also. I just, yeah. It was like, like, Catholics I'm, have been renovating their cathedrals because I'd look at this like cool Romanesque, like 9th, yeah. 10th century facade and I'd go in there and it looked like some freaking art museum from like the 60s. Yeah. I'm like, what is this shit? Yeah. And we've been, like we've yeah. been renovating these churches since the very beginning. So it gave me yeah, a little bit I mean, of perspective. The, the, the Renaissance, the Renaissance definitely... Disaster for humanity. Yeah, uh, I mean, it ended up, and I mean, a lot of awesome stuff out of the Renaissance. A lot of awesome stuff out of the Renaissance. Yeah, but to the a lot of, yeah, no, I mean, I was talking to another seminarian last week, and I said something about the Renaissance, and he was like, "Oh, one of the oh, just terrible, <laughs> terrible thing." And I was like, and I was like <laughs> "Best thing that came out of it was the Ninja Turtle names." And I was like, "Yeah, I was like, I was like, dude, like, no, like no Renaissance at all." He's like, "No," he's like, "It's all about." The Renaissance is all about man. The Renaissance is all about man saying me. Interesting. Me. And they ruined all those Romanesque and Gothic churches in Rome. That was the other thing he said. He said they ruined they all of these beautiful churches I feel in like, Rome. I feel like if you had a lot of money, if you were like, in my, I haven't been to Rome, but just my yeah. un, uninformed opinion, if you had a lot of money, like you were the Pope, you could yeah. probably make something really nice in the Renaissance. Yeah. But if you were on a little bit more of a budget, it, it looks gaudy and it looks a little like mm-hmm. not so tacky. It looks a little tacky. But if you've yeah. got like all the money in the world and you can hire Michelangelo to do like an entire like right. Right. chapel, then it's gonna right. look good. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, and there are and there are Renaissance styles that like like right. the chapel here at the seminary, uh the our big chapel here at the seminary is very Renaissance. Um, mm-hmm. but it's like it wasn't something else originally it was like it's got a beautiful you know it's got that that very gentle arch over the vault um it's very um the the facade is very um very i'm trying to think of a way to describe it uh but i mean um if you just if you just google Mm -hmm. you just google a picture of saint martin of tours at saint charles Borromeo seminary like you look at it you're like oh that's that's clearly neo neo uh Mm -hmm. uh 
neo renaissance in its in its style cool so, so i like what you said though about um getting out of your element and yeah. um the travel part so when you said that like yeah it was not a vacation for me like wow i guess they made the right choice it's not sending you to the neck um, yeah right. <laughs> but, but yeah so, i don't know if i would have done well there i mean I really because don't. that's what it's like except it's italian I mean, it's a first world country, yeah. so maybe it's a little bit different. I mean, theor- <laughs> theoretically, 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 right? <laughs> theoretically, in name. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I've talked to guys, I've talked to the, you know, my mm. friends who were over there, and um, they all have said that it was a really difficult first year over there. Probably. It was really hard. Yep. They said it was really hard to go. Um and um, it's pretty rigorous re- academically. Like, do they really put you through it over there? Um, it's not as rigorous as here. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, it's, yeah. it is, it is, it's a good education, but so, yeah. so there's, so it's the European college system. So you live, ah, yeah. um, you live at the seminary, but then you take classes at a different institution. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a couple institutions that the Americans go to. So um, the seminarians from my diocese go to the Angelicum, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, which is in English. The classes are in English. Oh, really? And some of the, the guys yeah. I know, they're going to classes that aren't in English. Yeah. So they're probably going to the Greg, the Gregorian, yeah. uh, yep. the Gregorian, the one guy the I know school. in particular, I'm thinking of, he's not actually, yeah. by the way, speaking <laughs> of the Jesuit school, um, yeah. somebody else made the point that all the good Jesuits in America get sent to Rome. So if you bump to yeah. an American, Jesuit, they like, they all get exiled quote unquote to Rome. I'm like, man. I'm going to become a Jesuit, man. Yeah, right, right. I'd like to get exiled to Rome. Yeah, so, um, but the education, I mean, um, having talked to those guys about the education they're getting over there, um, it's like, especially in scripture, um, uh, as far as, um, as far as like master's level stuff, like, which is what all seminaries are kind of doing in the, the primary or first cycle, as they call it over there. Um, that education is better here. Um, and the professors are better here is what I've been told largely. There's a couple of really good ones. Like they were taught. So for example, the guys at the Angelicum are taught moral theology by father gear tech. Um, wow. you guys might remember he visited Christendom when we were there. Was he Polish? And, uh, Polish? He's Polish guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, m- one of the greatest living moral theologians like alive. Yeah. He's been the theologian of the papal household for like, decades like he was there he was brought in under pope john paul ii is he still working or is he not anymore yep he's still the theologian Mm -hmm. of the papal household um and he is he's one of the greatest minds in theology alive today um and so he taught them moral theology father thomas joseph white was transferred from he taught at the dominican house of studies in dc he's written some books very Mm -hmm. orthodox light of christ is very good light of christ is his yep so he teaches at the angelicum Mm -hmm. Um, they have classes with him. Um, so it, it, so there's some exceptions, but overall, um, the education we get here in the States, uh, is better. And part of that is the engagement in Europe, in Europe, there's not the lecture style is very different. Mm -hmm. You kind of have a professor who sits up on a dais on a tall chair and he reads from his notes. Right, like, right. Yeah. you're just, glad I'm enunciating. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, be glad I'm enunciating. Uh, and he just reads from his notes. Whereas yeah. here in America, it's much more dynamic. It's much more engaging with the students. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, the guys say that the uh, yeah going to the knack has been has been very hard for them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to spend too much. Oh, sorry, Thomas. No, no, go right. Finish your thought. And then I didn't want to spend too much more time on the NAC, but this um, is kind of fascinating to me. So when people are said there, is it more of a place to, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, kind of network and get to know people? Um, is that kind of the goal of going there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's networking. It's networking, getting to know people and getting guys. It's kind of getting guys who you think will do well in that environment to go over and have a broader experience of the universal church. Um, and then, yeah, like they'll, and then they'll meet guys at the NAC from all over the United States. So they'll have connections in every diocese basically. And that allows for, and that allows for a lot of cross pollination and allows for guys, like if you're facing a situation in your diocese, like say you become a chancellor of your diocese where you're dealing with like a lot of different things. Right. Um, and you like, you come up with a situation, you're like, I'd like to get like another chancellor's take on this. You have like, you probably know chancellors from six, six or seven other dioceses around the country. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a big, that's a big draw. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So I, I, as, as Thomas said, I, I don't think I would have done particularly well uh there i would have i think i would have maybe not i don't know maybe i would have gotten used to it but it, it's it definitely yeah. it definitely would have been very difficult for me um, yeah I, I can believe it um so so you're, you're gonna ask something this is the right? well it wasn't a question but it was more of a point um where andrew talks about not kind of feeling secure and like mm-hmm. the, you know not feeling set um and there are some sometimes that happened to me over the past summer when i was in italy um because you didn't know where the next place there's a couple times when i was mm-hmm. traveling when i'm in transit between milan and assisi and then assisi mm-hmm. in rome it's like uh, you know i've got an airbnb set up i haven't met the person yet it's mm-hmm. all been over the internet and mm-hmm. it's really this sense of um Andrew, you're probably gonna know better than me the the bible verse of like the son of man does not have a place to set yeah. his head yeah, we're yeah, just yeah, like yeah. i like i've got like i'm literally pulling around like 150 pounds of luggage on me on a train around a bunch of people who am existentially yeah. worried are gonna talk to me because i might be right. like right italiano e molto stupido stupido right like something like that and right. so but there's it was <laughs> it was really funny um when i was taking the train to Assisi. Mm-hmm. It's taking one of these bullet trains from Milan to um, below, uh, Florence, Firenze. Firenze is the bit, one of mm-hmm. one of the big hubs. Bologna is the other one. But at Firenze, I was going to take a regional train um, down to Assisi, right? Because Assisi is not going to be in your main bullet line. It's going to be your mm-hmm. smaller train that goes up to your hub. And I still remember checking my phone and being like, holy crap, I have like four minutes to get off of this train and to get on the regional train. And like, I have no idea how I'm going to have to like find this. And yeah. so I get off of this bullet train and I have no idea because I've never been in the Firenze um, train station ever before. And Joe, so I start, so I found on my phone, like as the train's pulling into the, is pulling into the train station, I'm looking at what track we're coming in on. We're coming in on six and I can see the train, the track to the left of us is to the right of us is five. And I can see, okay, my train is on track 12. So that means it has to be to the left. Yeah. So that means that I have to go to the left once I get off this train. And so like I get off of get off the train and I'm like, I'm pulling luggage. I've got a mm-hmm. backpack. I've got like a 50 pound like thing I'm holding in my hands. I'm just booking it. Right. And I'm right. like, and there's like only one other train that's in the station. 
And I'm like, that's gotta be it. And so I just like, like the doors are open and it's like, it's about to close. And so like, I dive onto that train. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, I really hope this is the right train. And I'm like trying <laughs> to find a place and it's kind of crowded and blah, 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 whatever. And so I sit down to finally find some place where I can sit down. And like, there's this, there's this Italian girls. And I'm like, I was like, you know, scusi, questo uh, il treno numero, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah. She's like, it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the, thanks. Thanks me up there. Um, Thanks. Yeah, no, but there is really something, the same thing. Like when I'm going to Rome from Assisi, it's like, never met the person. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. how to get there. Like I've, I got a rough idea, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's this weird sense of, um, you know, you're worried about like getting pickpocketed or having yeah, stuff stolen. Yeah. Like you're worried yeah. about all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's, it's this weird, um, I wouldn't say giving up of yourself, but like, all right, we're going to, yeah. like, it's, it's yeah. like not to, I hate it when Catholics always quote Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia to like, I made bread ergo. I have like Lord of the Rings quote. I need to say, right. Um, or potatoes. I have to say something about Samwise or something, <laughs> um, but like it was, it, there's these points in it when you're like, uh, when you think to yourself, like, I will take the adventure that Aslan sends us. Right. Like, right. I'm just, I'm right. Just gonna, I'm, right. Just gonna, I'm just going to roll with it. I'm just going to yeah. take it. I'm just going to roll with it. Um, so there is, yeah. this, it's, it's, it's discombobulating, especially when you don't really quite know, like, where are you going to sleep the next day? What does mm-hmm. it look like? How mm-hmm. is the person going to be like? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's definitely an opportunity to learn how to trust, I think. Yeah. Trust is the operative word. Trust is super the operative word. I mean, it's, um, I think that that's, I think that so much of the time, Um, I know that I really crave certainty. Um, and I, and that's like one of the things that, um, can be really anxiety inducing in my life is when I'm like, I want certainty about this thing. And it's like, well, you're not actually ever going to have certainty about that thing. So the operative word is trust. Um, and that this summer was a huge for me was a massive testing ground for trust. And there were times where I was able to, and there was times where I was not. And, um, it was really, it was, but it was, but it was, it was good. I think for me to experience that, um, even though it was really hard, even though there were, there were eight of the hardest weeks, um, of my entire seminary experience for sure. Really? Yeah. Oh That's yeah. So weird. I, yeah. just, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I find like, it's like interesting to like, look out the window of a train and it's like, right. it's random countryside, but it's like, it's a different countryside. So it's interesting. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that, uh, it w- it might've been different. It might've been different if, um, if I, I think there was a, I created, there's a lot of pressure. I think that we all face when we go to somewhere to learn a new language. Right. I know that that's part of the reason you went to Italy, right. Is to learn a new language. Um, and so I think that part of the part of the anxiety is like being in a totally new place. Um, and really like kind of feeling like I really need to learn this because I'm going to be a priest in a place where people are going to need me to know this. Mm. And like, I need to be able to hear confessions someday in this language. I need to be able to say the Holy sacrifice of the mass someday in this language. And that creates a lot of internal, uh, pressure. Mm. Um, and you can feel like, like there were days, there were days. Yeah. And that just adds stress and anxiety. And you just have to kind of just do it. You just kind of have to be like, okay, whatever. And like, I really did try to do that, but there definitely were days where I would stop studying. Um, and I would like feel guilty. I would like put my Mm -hmm. books away and just, I'd be like, I'm just not studying anymore tonight. I'm just done. 
Um, and I'm tired. I'm stressed. Um, you know, it also gets dark in Guatemala at like seven at night, every night, even at the summer, even during the summer, it's like dark by seven. So like when you start studying at seven 30 and it's pitch black outside, you just do feel like, and then you have to get up the next morning at five. Like, you're just like, okay, like I'm just feeling pretty done here. Um, and so I think that that was, um, that was definitely a difficult thing was to like, there were moments where I really did feel guilty about I'm not studying right now Interesting, um, because there was like thoughts of like, you know, if I, you know, how many more hours could I have gotten in if I'd study, you know, how many in eight weeks, if I had studied an extra hour a day, you know, if I just push myself really hard to like study an extra hour a day, but um, you know, how, how much more could I have learned? Um, so, and, and the answer I think actually is not that much because, because yeah, exactly. it, seem, it seems like a lot at the time, but then, but then when you realize like, okay, actually when you push yourself to study past a certain point, mm-hmm. a threshold of emotional and psychological, as well as just bodily energy, you know, yeah. like there's just diminishing returns. Yeah. There's just diminishing returns on how much you're actually learning. Yeah. And the thing with languages is that it's, it's almost not, um, it's almost not how much you study. I mean, I'm sure there's a certain point in which you study, but what seems to be more important is the frequency with which you study. Yeah, I just like, got to study every like day. day and day, day in and day out. Um, mm-hmm. That's the thing that's happened with me is like my German has fallen off a cliff. Although right. what's funny is I went through a German article and I was actually like following a lot of it. I was like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, that I think that is the main thing with both languages is like, yeah, I mean, consistency is the key thing because um, the yeah. brain's another muscle just like, you know. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Just like the rest of you is. Um, yeah. That's what so. the, that's what the, um, that's what my Spanish teacher said today. Um, I'm not, are you taking I'm, Spanish right now? Yep. Taking Spanish here back in the seminary. Really? Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's probably the best. I should be doing Italian right now, but yeah, I need to be sometime. Uh, the, uh, the professor today, actually, he did something really smart. He invited us to, um, he invited all of us to like a Duolingo, uh, <laughs> to a Duolingo thing. And I'm like, Oh, he's going to keep track of like how often we're doing Duolingo from now on. <laughs> I'm like, that is smart. Oh, this sneaky man. Uh, this, you sneaky mom. Uh, so um, how important do you think Spanish is going to be in the American Catholic Church? Uh, say you're an old retired uh, priest, mm-hmm. you know, you've, I don't know, been all the priest things for, you know, 50 years or something. And mm-hmm. you look back at your life. How important do you think Spanish will be? Do you think? That, I think it will have been oh, very important. I was going to finish the question. Oh, like, dang it. I was going to finish it to like, kind of like, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. It, but like, do you think within 50 years, Spanish will be just as important mm-hmm. or do you think it will only be important for a certain demographic of Hispanics in the United States? Do you think by the time um, mm-hmm. you get towards the end of your priestly career, God willing, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. that most Hispanics in the United States will have a good understanding or even a better understanding of English than they do of Spanish. I think that, the way I think it's going to be about the same as now. I could be wrong. Um, if I mean, it depends on how how much the culture ends up fully collapsing or not, right? Um, okay, so okay, so it's I apocalyptic. Mean, like, so yeah, well, I mean, wasn't meaning to be an apocalyptic question. So so yeah, but like, so the thing about Spanish right now is Spanish is um, increasingly important right now. Spanish, the importance of Spanish is rising currently. Right, it's more important every year. More members of the parishes in the United States every year are, are Spanish speakers. Now their kids are all speaking English. Like I teach 
I teach CCD every Thursday night at a, a, a Hispanic parish um, here in the archdiocese. And I speak very little Spanish when I'm teaching CCD because all the kids are fluent in English. Oh. All of the kids are fluent in English. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the teacher who I'm co-teaching with speaks the least amount of Spanish of anybody in the room um, when I'm teaching. And she speaks pretty good English. Uh, did I say Spanish? Sorry. Yeah, you said Spanish. I was like, she wow, speaks, just... she speaks, she speaks, well, she wait speaks to, wait the least amount of English. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. She speaks, right. No, she speaks the uh, least amount of English of anybody okay. in the room uh-huh. by a lot. And she's, uh-huh. she's a very, you know, her English is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, um, yeah. So, so that's, so, so even though I'm speaking, but like all of the kid, all of the parents of these kids who I'm teaching, yeah, like exactly. most of them just speak Spanish. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the case everywhere right now is that like mm-hmm. anybody who comes to this country, right. Anybody who, when they, who comes to the country, like they don't speak very good English if they speak any, mm-hmm. um, after they've been here a long time, sometimes they'll speak some, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times they'll speak some after they've been here a long time. Um, but the big, yeah. So the, so I think that the importance of Spanish is going to maintain, I think it's, it's very important right now. And I think it's going to remain very important for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, as long as that older generation is as still long, well, but that's just there. it is that mm-hmm. I actually think that I actually think that more and more, um, I actually think that more and more people are going to keep coming here. Uh, okay. So um, you think, think since it's so a perennial thing, right? So I think it's the same thing. It's the same like priests, like, so my uncle's a priest for the diocese, right? Mm-hmm. And he speaks Spanish fluently and he's been doing, and like, he's been a priest for more, for 20 years. And it's the same today as it was when he was first a priest, which is everybody who's been here for, who, who was born here, everybody who grew up here, they all speak perfect English, but it's the, um, it's the generation who's coming in. The real thing, the real challenge for us is how to prevent um, the Hispanics from falling away, just like everybody else. Um, because even though they do have a higher level of praxis in their culture, um, one of the problems that's happening in the United States is, is that as their culture, as they assimilate with us, Mm -hmm. they become more secular. Um, and then, and that's like, you know, that's, that's one of the big, that's one of the really big challenges is that, is that you have, Mm -hmm. um, like, like, so that like Spanish mass on Sundays at all these parishes, like we have a lot of parishes with Spanish mass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a Spanish, at least one Spanish mass on a weekend. Okay. The trouble is preventing that from being seen as another cultural event by the younger generation. Mm. Cause a lot of the younger Hispanics like, um, you know, 50 years ago, younger, polish irish mm-hmm. right like they all like a yep, lot of the baby exactly. boomer generation right a lot of the baby yep. boomer generation left the church yep. because they just saw it as like a cultural thing their parents did or they'll come um, back sometime or they'll come back sometimes on christmas and easter yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. and it's a similar or the parish festival thing. or something yeah, like that right. yeah mm-hmm. so it's a similar thing with a lot of the hispanics right now is that a lot of them who come to the united states the parents will practice, but then the kids, a lot of the kids will not, a lot of the kids mm-hmm. will leave. Um, and it's, and it's, it's really, um, it's a real challenge to try and like, mm-hmm. like prevent that from happening. And so one thing that, um, one thing that I think is helpful is, um, sometimes you want to speak 
sometimes it's really good if if the you want to get the Hispanic kids to hang out at youth group and stuff at the parish with like um, everybody else, right? You don't want them you don't want them to feel like they have to have Spanish youth group or whatever. You want them to feel like they're a part of the parish family, mm-hmm. so that it's not just like this Hispanic thing they go do yeah. on Sundays. With that you parents. haven't you haven't balkanized the parish into right. like you have your Latin right. mass over here and you've got your right. English normies right. over here and then you got right. your Spanish people over here. like yeah. So yeah. there's so there's parishes. Did right? I say so, normies? Yeah, I said right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's parishes that there's parishes that have all three of those. Mm-hmm. And are able to bring all of those communities together for parish events, um, mm-hmm. and that's not the norm. Um, but that needs to become more of the norm as the yeah. parish becomes. I think the parish is going to become more important, not less, in Catholic lives going forward. Yeah. Um, uh, the the more the smaller the church gets, I think the more that families uh, are going to need to rely on the parish as a source of like really authentic communion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think that priests need to recognize that, um, at least seems to me that, that priests need to really recognize that, uh, we're going to need to really step up and, and give people opportunities. We're going to really need to step up and, and, um, provide as much as we can for people to have communion, uh, as a, you know, like as a people, as, as part of the mystical body, Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's going to be that's going to be really really important for us because I think that people are going to need it. Families are going to families don't do well when they're isolated, um, yeah. and I think that that's that's going to be a and so both with the Hispanic population and with parishes in general, I think that making the parish more and more a place of familial uh, communion, not just at the mass. Um, is going to be important going forward mm-hmm. in our culture. I yeah. Think right. Yeah. I think it was interesting because I remember being in um, my old parish in Milwaukee, St. Anthony's. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a Spanish mass that was right after the regular English mass with all the normies. Mm-hmm. And then it was always awkward during Easter vigil or during midnight mass. Cause it was like some of the readings being Spanish, some of being mm-hmm. English. And mm-hmm. it felt like you were trying to bring two parishes together mm-hmm. or, um, the important celebrations. And so right. my, my solution was just make it in Latin. Everyone's confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but at the same time, it, it, it is an interest. It's a little bit of an interesting conundrum where you have two, um, I wouldn't say different cultures because they're both Catholic, but different, right. certainly different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how do you meld those two together, mm-hmm. um, to form some sort of unifying, not just in like a mystical body of Christ, blah, 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 theology, mm-hmm. sense of it, but just like mm-hmm. in a very really lived, like parochial parish experience. How do you make those instead of being like Hispanics are off there saying their things in Spanish and, you know, mm-hmm. banging on drums and guitars and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you have your mm-hmm. English people over here singing on Eagle's wings and all the other garbage or excuse me, um, songs, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like on mm-hmm. the other side, like how do you bring those two together so that they're not separate? Um, it's interesting. The aspects. new, uh, the new Roman, the new translation, the new Spanish translation of the Roman missile that came out a couple of years ago. Cause the, the English came out, what, like when we were in college yeah, and then the or Spanish, before. the updated, the updated Spanish translation came out just like two or three years ago. Um, and it is interesting. If you look at the melodies, if you look at the, um, if you look at what they have in there, as far as like the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei and stuff in the, in the Spanish missile for Latin America, South America and the United States, like um, 
the the sanctus and the agnus day and all the all the you know the propers of the mass um they um they're all like they have a lot they're not all but they have a lot of gregorian mm. uh modes in there interesting for for spanish right yeah. so like um that and and spanish actually maps better into gregorian modes of singing than english does um and so there's actually there's there's glorias and all this other stuff like where you're like wow like this actually kind of sounds like gregorian chant you know yeah. and we do some of that here at the seminary when we have we have mass in spanish once a week and um a lot of times the modes that we do are right out of the missile um right out of the spanish missile and they are their their gregorian chant um so that's it so like that's where the mind of the church is at on this um now that's something that's i think going to take time and education and love to like inculcate into hispanic ministry but it seems like the mind of the church is that um no matter what your culture is um the the liter the, the best way to worship at a latin liturgy is going to be by adopting gregorian chant modes hmm. um and i think that's no bad thing that's like a really good thing in fact sacrosanctum concilium right uh second vatican council said that the greatest treasure which the church possesses of uh her um inheritance right uh, humanly speaking it makes clear that it's humanly speaking it's not her architecture it's not like all kinds of like it's not all this other stuff that we can think about all these beautiful things we have vestments um all this stuff chalices like you know all these art right even not even sacred art the greatest treasure soccer son of concilium says is the the wealth and the treasury of sacred music um and um that's like really striking it's not sacred art it's not sacred architecture it's not sacred vestments it's not it's the music um and i think that that it's sacred music and i think that uh and it, directly and the, the council says that gregorian chant and sacred polyphony uh are to be are are, are, are like expressions of this um and so i think that that's the mind of the church right there. So I think that um, for both English speaking and Spanish speaking masses moving forward in the future, that should be something that we should be looking at. And that, so when you walk into a Hispanic mass in the United States, mm -hmm. the vibe of it should feel more Hispanic. Sure. But you shouldn't feel like you have no, like you shouldn't walk in and feel like I'm just way out of my element here. Right. right. I'm just way the tone, the, it should tonally be the same. Tonally. It you, should be very exactly. similar. Interesting. That's different because it's also an interesting position that the American Catholic church is in, in the sense that I don't mm -hmm. think many other, because you don't have in Guatemala trying to figure out, okay, are we going to do this? Are we going to do English for mm -hmm. this? Do Spanish. Same thing in Italy. It's not like you're, they're sitting around being like, Hey, mm -hmm. are we going to do German and Italian? Mm -hmm. No, you know, we're just going to do right. Italian, right? You don't right. have those linguistic issues that you do in the United States where you have to navigate mm -hmm. between, again, I don't want to say two different cultures, but two different expressions of worship in the Latin form mm -hmm. that you have to balance that. That's an mm -hmm. actually a very fascinatingly interesting proposition that I hadn't thought about as much, or there's mm -hmm. Canada, but nobody cares about Canada with French and no, the Canadians are kind of supposed to be doing, uh, they have their own Episcopal conference, oh. but I mean, they're, they're in English and French. So 
And only the really, only really Quebec is in French. So exactly. and I do not know. Be, and they want to know enough country. So who cares? Right. Right. So, I don't know. I, I wanted to um, offer a suggestion that um, I really appreciated about my parish. Yeah. Um, so we have, um, we don't have a Spanish mass at our parish, but we have an English mass and a Latin mass. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, to bring those two groups together, um, our pastor will, whenever there's a, um, a major uh, feast day, he yeah. will have a procession through the city in between the English and the Latin mass. So anybody That's really cool right after the Latin mass is when it happens, but it's close enough that the Latin mass people are starting to show up. And so everybody goes together through this procession. And like, so you have both groups and it's, um, it's a really good idea. And I know he does that on purpose. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah. He's timing it very purposefully. Yeah. Um, so doing things like that, where you catch people like coming and going at the same time, I think is, like you're saying, you have to be very um, deliberate about how you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As like the manager of the parish, you can't just kind of be like, oh, you guys could be English masses at 8 a.m. and then Spanish masses at 3 p.m. and you never see each other ever. Yeah. Like you yeah. should try and have some overlap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, the worry is you have two parishes occupying the same building. Right. That's, that's right. That's what you want to try and avoid. And it's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it takes a lot of work to really try and get past that. But that's even with the USCCB, the USCCB has several, they've released a bunch of different stuff on this over the years, but the USCCB says we got to try and avoid this two parish thing where we have people, the the only, like they worship in the same building, but like, they're just, besides that, they're just totally separate from each other. That's not good. Um, And I, I, and I agree with that. I think that we need to do our, everything we can to kind of bring those, communities together so that's why i went to guatemala that's why i went hopefully uh the lord will be able to use me uh as a fitting instrument to do his work so um yeah i'm a little bit not gonna lie yeah please pray for me i'm i'm very i'm very intimidated by um ordination and uh or comma Uh, i'm intimidated by ordination um, uh, in April. Uh, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. I'm also, I'm also like, I think in particular, there's some fear I have about doing Hispanic ministry, um, which is normal. Like, like talk to my vocation director about kind of like, yeah, I'm like kind of afraid of this stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'd be worried if you weren't. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's funny. Um, my brother, um, works at a dairy farm and most yeah. of the most of the people who work there are from guatemala and um oh sure costa rica and from central he said they're more from central america than they are from actual mexico sure um and he he speaks spanish but again he's picked it up by working at the farm talking to them because mm-hmm. he's gotten it through almost the best way possible which is kind of yeah. interactions right um but no like they'll like the hispanics who are living in his neighborhood now they'll literally bang on his door to like, they had to take someone to the hospital. So they, they asked him to come along so that he That's could help awesome. out. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's this interesting dynamic with him personally. And so we were, yeah. we were joking, like if anything, like if anything like happens to John, like, you know, he gets robbed or mugged or something like he's going to have like a whole bunch of people <laughs> showing up being like, no, you must, you don't mess with that dude. He's <laughs> like, he's here to help us. Right? He's one of us. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think there's at least, at least from That's that experience, awesome. I can't say, you know, wider, but there's this appreciation of, for him um, that he's, you know, 
he's there for them and he's, yeah. he's helping them out. And it's like, and he speaks some Spanish and obviously uh, John speaks pretty good English. It's not that. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, I, it's I mean, okay. I don't speak, I don't speak good. English. This no, is some no. of my other friends who don't, who's like English is a second language. And they're like, Oh yeah, but my English is, I'm like, yeah, my English is pretty shit. Also, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. can barely sling words together at any point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I think there it's interesting because when it's, the, it's that appreciation of actually, at least with Italian, it's like, there's the appreciation by Italians. of like, no, you're an American. You could probably go through our whole country, not speaking italian ever but you're still trying to Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. i think that's another point like when you mentioned clark about the uh, passports you don't also think about the language aspect because you could literally go and tour all of europe and not speak any languages like you can speak french german or italian and you still probably and even spanish in in spain and you'd probably still be fine Mm -hmm. but the thing is is that when you as an american like try to take like okay i'm actually going to try my best to learn this language and like actually mm-hmm. immerse myself i think a lot of people at least from my experience with italy is they really appreciate that it's like well i mean you like my my italian is at the level of like you're russian so <laughs> after you've learned like german and english so i mean i'm not sure why you're that happy with me but whatever right, okay right right, right right but yeah i had that realization uh for the past couple of weeks at work we've been uh dealing with a group of people from the Netherlands at the University mm. of Rotterdam. And uh, I, I was sitting there thinking English is all of your second, second language. Like, I'm sure if you break out into your own meetings, yep. you're all speaking Dutch, you're speaking English for the benefit of us. And we have no clue. We would be totally lost if you all broke out into Dutch. Yep. Like it was. Um, so yeah, I kind of had that moment of thinking like, man, this is, I feel really kind of uneducated. A little dumb. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the, the yeah. weirdest, the weirdest thing is when I, when I did the Dodd program in Germany, it's, it's the people from Eastern Europe because they already know like their own, like really hard Slavic language. Cause Slavic mm-hmm. is like some of the hardest languages to mm-hmm. learn in the yep, world, for but sure. like, they're also like, Oh yeah. They're also like fluent in English. It's like, you know, my German isn't really <laughs> that good. And their German is like smoking, like almost your English at every turn. You're just like, I just, why don't you just shut up? Just shut up, Mister. Like, I know four languages, and my fourth language isn't that good, but it's better than the second language. Like, just shut up, look, jackass. Look, this is yeah. this is what I have to deal with us being part of a superpower, okay? And it's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Too bad for me. Um, Thomas, we've talked about this, but man, Andrew, I'm sure you've seen it, but um, the. The videos of uh, Pope John Paul II speaking like any language, like he was really good at language. Stupid awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, he was, I'm just like, man. He spoke at least, he spoke at least nine or 10 languages. And like Um, really well. And he spoke them well. Yeah. 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 I mean, and it, and it really was, and it really was, I mean, I mean, I can remember, I can remember being really moved. Um, one of my, cause Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict was elected when I was 15 mm-hmm. and I can remember him coming out and I guess I would have been 14. I would have been 14 actually. Um, but anyway, I remember him coming out. I remember him. He spoke first in Italian mm-hmm. and then, um, I can't remember. I can't remember if he spoke. I can't remember what the order was, but eventually he spoke. He he said, he said, my dear brothers and sisters in English. Yeah. And I'd remember that feeling yeah. like, like just like that, you know, like the kick or flutter in the diaphragm, right? When you're yeah. like, 
oh my gosh, like this is the yeah. father of the church speaking. And, and, uh, and it, and it is, and it kind of gives you a little bit of a taste, like just a little bit of a taste of Pentecost, right? Like right. what must, what must the crowds have experienced when that's beautiful, like St. Peter, yeah. St. Peter starts preaching, right? And he starts preaching about the power and the love and the mercy of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Imagine being Mm -hmm. one of those thousands of people in the crowd who've gathered, right? The people gather because of the great noise of the spirit descending, right? The people don't just gather from nowhere. They hear a noise so that when the apostles come out, the people are there. Like the Acts of the Apostles says the people had gathered like, what's going on? Something's going on. And then Peter opens his mouth. And everybody hears him preaching in their own language and they realize it's their language and they recognize that something is happening because they see everybody around them. They see people from all these different parts of the world all reacting the same way. And I like to imagine that each one of them was experiencing like this kind of kick in the diaphragm where they felt their hearts soar and their minds reacting to the truth of the gospel. And I just think that's like when we hear the Holy Father, when we hear somebody who is in a spiritual authority speak our language and make the yeah. effort to do that, and we feel that love, I think that's just like a taste of like Pentecost. I think it's just like I, a really, I'm, really cool thing. I've never made the connection between St. Peter coming out onto the ledge and then also the, the Pope coming out onto the... Yeah. Onto the, uh, like... Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> People come to the square because they hear the bells going. Yeah. Right. They hear the noise. Right. And they see right. the smoke, which obviously Pentecost and fire. Like, yeah, it's a very Pentecostal moment. The, that it is. Of and like, it's but not they intended it to be that way. It's very much that way. It's, yeah. Just a little, just, yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Just a little yeah. side story uh, that one of the Monsignors here at the seminary told, because he was in Rome when Benedict was elected. And he said, um, one of, it was like, because of the sky, uh, on the day when bank was elected, like it was very, very difficult to tell what color the smoke was. Right. And so when the Cardinals, when the Cardinals go into, um, the Sistine chapel, right. To vote, like they lock themselves in there. Like nobody goes in or out until, um, uh, they have a vote and then they burn, you know, the ballots and then they, they, you know, make, when they've elected a Pope, you have the white smoke and then the Cardinals, nobody leaves the Sistine Chapel until they hear the bell ringing. They're not permitted to leave until they hear the bell ringing. They're not permitted to make contact with anybody like nothing. Okay. So the day Benedict is elected, um, the white smoke starts coming out. Okay. And nobody in the square can tell what color the smoke is. They're like, like they know it's smoking, but they, they just can't, they're like, between. they're like, they're not sure what, what's going on. And so there's like this long lag where like people, like people just don't know what to do. And yeah. it, it's just go, it's just dragging on and on and on. And so this, there was the, there was this Monsignor was telling the story, a friend of his was vested to start mass in, in, um, St. Peter's. Cause he, he was, that was his day. He's Whoa. a part of the Roman curia and he was, yeah. he was on for mass that day. But yeah. like he's standing in the sacristy, like of St. Peter's, and he's like, 
what do we do? Cause like there's, <laughs> there's like smoke coming out, but nobody knows what, 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 and like, yeah. if I start mass and the Pope comes out, like, 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 like who are you supposed to mention in the canon like, of the mass right, also? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> right, so, yeah. so, so it's yeah. like, okay. So he's standing there in the sacristy and it's been like, the smoke's been coming out for like 10 minutes. And so, um, like everybody's wondering what's going to happen. Like, is the smoke white? Is the smoke red? They're still pouring. Like, clearly they're still burning stuff because they're still, yeah. they're still sending more smoke out. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> so like, they're like, what's going on? So, so this priest is standing in the sacristy and um, then the phone in the sacristy rings and he looks over and the light that's on the phone is the Sistine Chapel phone. <laughs> and the priest is like, Oh, like they're not okay. Like, and so he like yeah. he's standing there in his vestments, and he like tentatively reaches over, and he like picks up the phone, and then he just hears "Habibus Papam" click, like <laughs> like Whoa. Cardinal on the other side "Habibus Papam" click, and then he's like, <laughs> oh, jerk. Oh, so then please tell me what his so please tell me what his like his that's all he says. That's all he said. And then, so this priest in his vestments runs out to the bell tower and he's like, start ringing the bell. Like, start ringing the bell. <laughs> so then they so that was his job to like alert the bell no, tower to go? No, oh, no. The bell is okay. supposed to start ringing when they see the smoke. But because nobody could tell, the cardinals were sitting oh, in the Sistine oh. Chapel with Benedict there. <laughs> Benedict's like probably like ready to go. And like, they're just like, why isn't the bell ringing? <laughs> the why, why isn't the bell ringing? And so the cardinals are just like, they're just like, and then like, finally oh, they were like, they're like, yeah. we're not allowed to tell, we're not allowed to like leave. Right. And so they're like, what do we do? So finally, one of the Cardinals just called the sacristy. And then he just <laughs> said, just that. Habemus that Papam. Click. And so then um, my friend, the, the priest who's telling the story, he was in the square mm-hmm. and he said, the, so nobody could tell what color the smoke is. And, and then he said, the um the whole crowd starts to like undulate and like people start to like like people start like sighs and like what what and then he realized there's no noise yet but then he looks up and he realizes and people start pointing and the massive bell in the bell tower it's not ringing yet but it's like starting to sway and it's and like people and then so people start jumping up and down and cheering even before the bell sounds. And then finally the bell just booms out across Mm. Rome. And it's just like, and it's just like, Mm. let's freaking go. And it's just, Oh man. Like there's something so sacred about that. And it's so interesting because like, right. Even to this day, even to this day, CNN, Fox news, MSNBC, like when that smoke turns white, they shut yep. everything else down and all cameras go to Rome and everybody's yep. looking at that balcony. Who's going to walk out and what's he going to say? Yep. Um, and who walks out and what he says has a huge impact on the future of the entire world. Um, yep. As long as he's Holy father. So it's just, yep. um, it's, it's just a, it's a really, really special, special time. And um, I, I just, yeah, just to, to, to be there at a time like that would just be, amazing oh my gosh so yeah. how do wait how did we get on this Ah, uh, we were talking about pentecost we we're talking oh, okay. oh language speaking language language, there you go. language. Speaking language. 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 yes there you go. Language. i mentioned jp2 and then uh, yeah. I, I jumped to benedict yeah yeah so yeah of course yeah well peter what's uh i mean we can still continue to talk about guatemalan languages but i think we could jump on to the other topic if we wanted yeah to. 
Yeah, right. sure. Let's, let's move some. Let's of. move theological, shall we say? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um. So I had a friend, uh, not Catholic, kind of bring up this interesting idea that I hadn't really given any intellectual thought to before. Sure. If the human soul has free will, mm-hmm. how can it be bound in the afterlife to either heaven, hell, or purgatory? If it is free to, mm-hmm. if it is free to choose. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well. I, I think I know the answer, but I also mm-hmm. wanted to pose it to you. Yeah. To, because you're obviously taking a lot of theology right now. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's a really cool. Yeah. So it's, so I think, so I think there's something that's kind of key in all this, which sounds it's what I'm about to say is going to sound controversial. And then I'm going to clarify it. And it's not actually controversial. Okay. And that is that um, uh, as Catholics, um, the most, the most, I think the most robust position that we have, and not all Catholics agree with this, not all theologians agree with this, but, uh, th- this is what St. Thomas says, and I think he's right, uh, and it makes the most sense to me, is okay. St. Thomas says that every human being is free, and they have free choice. What he calls his free choice. Right. Um, the will is not free. The will is predetermined to the good. So we always seek the good. And when we sin... So, so let, let me let me make another let me make another clarification before I go on to how free choice works. Right. The way that the way that Saint Thomas understands this, and I think he, again, I I think he's right, is that it's it it's the rationality of man, which has two components. Rational being rational means we have intellects mm-hmm. and we have wills. So the intellect is what knows. And the will is what chooses. What St. Thomas says is the will chooses what the intellect proposes as good. Okay. So, and I think we all experience this in our lives where we know something is when we know something is bad, for example, but we, we, we coat it with something else like something we know about it right we like so the intellect sees that this particular thing is is wrong and the intellect knows that but the intellect also sees that the intellect also knows that it's very pleasurable let's say and so you're debating about doing this thing whatever it is okay and you finally present you finally decide to do it and when, when you do it, you like, you really kind of present it to yourself as like a really good, it's good for me in this way. This is why I want to do it. And so I think we even experience the ordering of the intellect uh, presents to the will and the will always follows the intellect. The free choice that we have lies in that interplay, the interplay between us having a mind with which to know and then the ability to choose to do things that we know. And so I think that it's very important to say that we have free choice and that like, because, and, and St. Thomas, like the church obviously holds that to that, to the hilt. Like it's totally ironclad that if you don't have free choice, you're not culpable. So you have to have free choice, but the interplay between free, between the intellect and the will is very important. And the will is what presents things to the uh, the intellect the intellect is what presents things to the will 
to be done. I don't, I hope this is not overly philosophical for our listeners, but no, um, they're all pretty smart. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, all, so all, I think, all three I think, of them. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so I think this, and so I think this is, um, I think, and again, like I said, I think we actually experience this in our actions. We present like when we think about doing something, when we do decide to do it, our mind is like, okay, I'm going to do this because I'm, I'm seeing it as good in some respect. Sin is when the intellect lies to the will, when we lie to ourselves. And uh, oftentimes it's deliberate. Oftentimes we know we're lying to ourselves. Like when, you know, uh, when, when a guy uh, chooses to look at pornography, right. Uh, when he feels lonely, let's say, right. If somebody feels you feel lonely. Uh, and so you, you choose to look at pornography to like satiate that kind of loneliness, but you know, you know that it's wrong, but you convince yourself that the pleasure is worth it, that it's like, it's worth it in some respect because I'll get out of this loneliness. And so that's what St. Thomas's position is. And I think, again, I think we even experience life that way. And it makes sense to me when it comes to choosing heaven, right? The choice of choosing heaven, each of us is living right now. We are living in our lives, whether or not we will we will have chosen heaven and we can look at our lives and we can see whether or not we're, and this is the path of holiness is, are you, are you making choices that lead you down the narrow way, the way of the cross? Are you following in the footsteps of Jesus that are leading you to heaven? So when we talk about eternity, right? Um, it's kind of like GK Chesterton said when GK Chesterton talked about being open-minded, GK Chesterton said, it's very important to be open-minded but the mind is designed to close on something. The mind is open looking for the truth. But then when the, when the mind finds the truth, it's supposed to close on it and hold it because that's what the mind is supposed to do is no truth. And that's actually the mind most being what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we choose, um, when we, God willing, go to heaven, we will have chosen that which our will and intellect, our full nature has been looking to close on the whole, our whole life. And so it's almost like heaven is the fruit of a choice you've made, right? It's almost like the experience of heaven, the experience of the vision of God is the experience of it's the fulfillment of choices we have made our whole life. So the reason we're still free in heaven is because it's, it's like, it's like we're the freedom that we find in knowing the truth. Right. Um, it's like the freedom we find when our minds finally are, um, we wonder at something, we, we, we look out at something in the world and we wonder at it. How is it that way? And then when we come to understand that thing, that is like, that brings joy and, and wonder even it deepens the wonder and brings joy, which is the fruit of the action. And so I think that, but that doesn't mean that the action isn't still what it is. And that doesn't mean it hasn't. Um, and that doesn't mean that the fruit of the action is not the, the, it's part of that same action because it's the fulfillment of that thing. Right. So, right. Um, so I think that that's how um, I think that's how most of the theologians think about heaven as they think about it as it's, we have, we have made the choice by the grace of God, by the grace of God, we have made the choice and heaven is the enjoyment, the eternal enjoyment of the freedom 
of that choice. Um, and so it's almost like you can imagine because in eternity, there's no time, which is like, we can't even like get our minds around that as human beings that exist in time. But um, it's almost like we, yeah, I think that's the best way to say it. We're enjoying the fruit of that choice. We're enjoying, uh, which in one sense, right? Like we can even think about this, like, right. Like the, the pleasure that we get from um, a, of something becomes very closely identified, almost identical with the thing itself, right? So the experience of seeing a beautiful painting, right? If you see a beautiful painting or you look out uh, or you look out at a beautiful landscape and you get that, that sense in your chest of like that, that sense of like a slight flutter of like experiencing wonder or joy, that kind of becomes synonymous with the experience of, of, of what you're seeing, right? Like you're seeing the beauty and it's doing something to you, right? But that's like, it's like kind of part of the whole, it's all kind of one thing where you're experiencing it and it's changing you. And that's like, and so I think that the, it's almost like, you know, the consummation of the experience, right? It's not a different experience, but it's like the consummation of the one experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's how as Catholics, we think about heaven as it's, it's the fruit, it's the consummation of all the free choices we have made by the grace of God. And it's mm -hmm. the enjoyment of that of that free choice it's almost like it's one eternal choosing of this thing and 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 hence the fulfillment and enjoyment of that mm -hmm. thing so you're still free because you're 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 living in the you're like living most fully in the fulfillment of the freedom that you have um, right right so that's really long-winded i probably could have made it yeah, short. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like when when that song hits the hits that like that perfect note or when that mm -hmm. sunset hits its perfect right you know like moment where you just behold it and you grasp it but since right. you're not within a temporal dimension or realm right. or whatever you want to say um you simply continue to behold it because what happens like when you see a like beautiful sunset or you hear like a song it's like okay it's cool mm -hmm. and then it ends right mm -hmm. um that was the thing i had when i was like in a cc when i was listening to the choir um practicing yeah. and they had and they would continue to kind of do these these like these same repetitions and it was like they'd they'd really hit this like oh my gosh this is beautiful and then the director would be like cut and go back and do it again right and he'd be like, <laughs> no stop go back go back stop like that right. was beautiful right. right right and but instead of having that like okay let's go back let's try it again but like that that instantaneous holding on to that moment mm -hmm. because like mm -hmm. i could go anywhere right i could go walk mm -hmm. around wherever i wanted to see see mm -hmm. i could go back to my home i can go check my phone i could do whatever i wanted but in that specific moment i didn't want to i didn't want to do anything except behold it however mm -hmm. living within a temporal world obviously that singular moment is going to end Mm -hmm. And it did end because I'm sitting here talking to you two schmucks. Um, right, right, right. <laughs> but, yeah. right. So I think that's a good way of describing it, though. I think that's an excellent way. And I, you know, I think Aquinas, from what I remember of what I read, um, he has a similar opinion of the intellect of angels. Right. Where they have a very deep understanding of what the true and the good and what God is. And they couldn't choose otherwise. Essentially, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that. What I, the only last part that I would want to flesh out is this mm -hmm. idea that I think, so on the flip side, you, you, so if God willing, you make it to heaven and you get mm -hmm. to experience a joy for, for eternity, that's one thing. But if, does your free will end? If like, where does that intellect and will play? If you have been damned to not be with God for the rest of eternity? 
Yeah, I think it's kind of the um I think it's kind of the eternal frustration of that. I think that hell is like an eternal turning in on oneself and yeah. a an eternal like feeling the pain of everything that you desire um being frustrated. You're unable to actually actual you're unable to actually be fulfilled in any way that right. you crave. Um, and you have made, you have made the definitive, you have made ch the choices that have definitively led you, um, away from God and away from that, uh, the ability to be fulfilled in that. And I think that, um, I think that one of the things that one of the, one of the, one of the things that people say, well, like if you had eternity, wouldn't you change? Yeah. Uh, when you eventually change your mind, so this is the universal well, if there's position. no, if there's no time in eternity, well, what does that even look like? What does it even look like to, to, what does it even look like to say that you could change your mind in eternity? Like right. if eternity is being with God in the ceaseless now, right. I, I don't know what it, I don't know what it means to, to be able to change. Um, once your mind has definitively grasped the good or definitively closed to the good, um, like you're, you've passed beyond temporal temporal like the reason the angels could only choose once is because god created them and then they had and then he gave them the uh, the option to choose but angels don't exist in time right. that's and they don't have bodies so it's like if you don't if you're not in time where choices are made right I don't know. I, I don't know philosophically what it what it would or theologically what it would mean to say that when you've once you've entered eternity, um, you could change. I mean, I, I guess the universalist. I guess the universalist could argue that hell is in time and heaven's not. That might be a way they would try and go is to say hell so, is. Yeah, you know, certainly there. I think there could be. Now I'm you know just playing kind of a universal. Universal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. But if purgatory is a position mm. where there is a time where you are without God and then you become with God, and there's mm. a, certainly there is room in the Catholic theology for an afterlife that experiences hmm. some kind of some kind of change. Yeah, interesting. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. That's a all really right. good point. Well, I think yeah. that it's a change. In I guess we just gotta all go offer incense at the altar of David Bentley Hart. So oh, here's what. Is, so here's what. It's the only solution. Yeah. No, thanks, Peter. But look at what the church says. Look at what the church. This is no, This is good, Peter. I like this. Um, but look. But look at what the church says about purgatory. Um, people in purgatory, um, they are purely passive. They're not able to act uh, themselves. They're not able to pray for themselves, right? That's why we pray for them because yeah. they can't pray for themselves. Um, they're purely, they're receiving passive purgation. Um, yeah. And it's more a change in state than a change in like their, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not them deciding over the course of purgatory, like, oh, I need to change this about how I was. No, it's they see how they are. They, they actually, I think one of the things about purgatory that's going to be really hard um, is seeing us, like seeing ourselves as we really are. Oh, and shit. I think that, yes, yeah, like, <laughs> you're like, you're like, oh man. I mean, there's that beautiful image. Who draws the image? Um, it might be Trees of Avila. I can't remember. But she talks about like the soul that's not yet perfect appearing before our Lord's judgment seat. And 
the soul seeing the face of Jesus and the soul fleeing to the fires of purgatory, like willingly and eagerly, like, because he cannot stand before the face of God who is perfect and loving in his current state. And he knows that. And so he throws himself into the fires of purgatory um, and, 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 and experiences that pain, that purgation, that, that burning away, quote unquote, of, of the, um, of his, of his remaining uh, sinful habits and all that. But that's like the sinful habits don't change. You're done. Choose, you're done acting. Right. Right. You're done. You're done choosing stuff that you're not yeah. choosing anymore in purgatory. You're just receiving like, and, and who knows how long purgatory is again, like this is like, yeah, sure. You know, theologians yeah. debate about this, like purgatory could be a split second. practically instantaneous. Yeah. Right. But it would be, but it might, but who knows what that'll feel like? Like, what would it feel yeah. like to instantaneously see yourself as you truly are and then receive the mercy and the love and the justice of God. Like it could be like crazy intense. That would be like, you would never want like, Oh no. And would like, and how would you even feel it necessarily if there isn't a resurrection of the body? Right. Right. How how does that play into it? Right. Right. How do you feel something if you only have a soul? Right. So it's gotta be, is it it an intellectual, like, like imposter syndrome? It would seem like, (laughs) right. It would seem like it has to be. Yeah. (laughs) No, it would seem like it has to be an intellectual. It has to be a spiritual experience because your body's not there. You won't get your body until the resurrection of the body, right. At the general, at the last judgment. So, um, you know, if you're in purgatory, yeah, nobody in purgatory has a body. So, What does it mean to say somebody's in purgatory right now for us? Hard to say because they because they 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 exist in a in a in a different level of being where time, if it's there at all, it operates very differently. And so, it's a, it must be a spiritual experience of some kind of purgation, um, and that's what that's all we know, right? And we know that souls in purgatory have appeared to people. That's the other thing. Many many yeah. over the history of the church, souls have appeared. And um, you know, this one great story. Uh, I heard this summer of a priest, uh, a priest who died um, and um, uh, the rectory he had been in was like the next priest moved in and like stuff was moving. And like the priest was the next priest was like, I got to get an exorcist in here. This is nuts. But what kept happening was especially there was this drawer in the desk that kept rattling. And eventually the exorcist came and they found in the drawer buried under a bunch of crap. They found a pile of mass stipends (laughs) for masses that had not been said. (laughs) So this priest had been given this priest had been given over the course of his life, many stipends to say mass. And he hadn't said the masses. Ooh. So, What happened? The exorcist said, he told the priest, you get every one of these mass stipends out to different priests in the diocese. And all of you guys bang this out. (laughs) You you get this done. And this guy, this, 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 and this will stop because he's in purgatory and he's telling you, I, I can't. Leave purgatory until these. I done screwed up. (laughs) I screwed up. Screwed up. I done screwed up. I didn't, I took money and didn't, I took money to uh, provide for the saying of masses to buy the candles, the whole bit. 
right? Like a uh, mass stipend is not that much. A mass stipend for a mass is like five, 10 bucks or something. It's like, oh, so really? yeah, it's not much at all. Oh, right. Man. But it's, but it's, oh, um, yeah, because like if it was much more, you would, if it was much more, people would be like, wait, I thought I'm paying for the sacrament now. And you're like, no, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah, no. You're not yeah. paying for the sacrament. You're just, you're just giving a stipend. So, um, so anyway, so that the, sure enough, the extras, like they got all these, they got all the masses said for all the intentions and then the rattling stopped. Everything stopped. <laughs> Oh my gosh so sometimes souls in purgatory like he couldn't the priest couldn't do anything right he was in purgatory he was yeah. dead and like he had he needed to pay for he needed to have restitution for not saying these masses for these people as he was obligated to do and now he obviously must have repented of that because he because he was in purgatory right um right. but um you know that that was like he needed to make restitution and so once his brother priests who were still here on earth uh said said those masses he was home free <clears throat> like pretty crazy but like no, that's nuts yeah it's just like that's true story like so let me toss out a different question to you then uh, along yeah. kind of along the same lines then um christianity in many ways i don't want to like anthropomorphize it but sure in the sense of Christianity does a very good job of answering the problem of pain. Yeah. I'm suffering because it's, it's mm -hmm. a redemptive. Like if you're just looking at it from kind of like um, a sociological, like what does it function? How does it do? How does yeah. it solve these issues is Christianity at the base of it takes suffering and redeems it first, obviously through the cross of Christ. And then obviously mm -hmm. through all of our everyday sufferings, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. How does that work then? with the suffering of hell yeah if it's not redemptive if it's simply mm -hmm. as a punishment how does that function within the christian understanding of suffering as redemptive yeah sure so i think that um so there's so there's two things i want to say first thing that comes to mind is a quote from c.s lewis um and i think he's quoting saint john chrysostom actually but uh which and the quote is that the fires of hell are the flames of God's love. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the second thing I would say is that um, not all suffering is redemptive. All suffering united to the cross is redemptive. Hmm. All suffering, all suffering has the capacity to be redemptive. But um, I think that, that's that. So, so it's not, it's not that all suffering is redemptive. It's that all suffering has the capacity to be redemptive. Hmm. And I think that that's, that's where the, 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 the hell, hell comes in um, is that it's their suffering is not redemptive because they've definitively chosen not to unite it to the cross. Um, hell is a, hell is a place of frustration, right? Again, it's, it's, a, it's a turning, it's an eternal frustration of all of our desires, everything we're made for. It's not, God is not commanding, like God doesn't command demons to come along and poke you and flay you alive and then flay you alive again. And like, I was like, like, God's not like doing all that. Right. Like it's, 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 it's a rejection of the good. It's a rejection of love and mercy. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's a, the best way to describe hell is like, it's a rejection of mercy. It's people who refuse to receive the mercy of God. They refuse to trust. They refuse to give over. They refuse to forgive. They refuse. It's so it's just, so it's a frustration. It's an, it's an, it's a privation. Right? We're talking about evil as a privation of the good. Hell is a, when people have decided that they 
will definitively reject that. And so I think that uh, it's important. The distinction is important to say that not all suffering is redemptive, all suffering, Mm -hmm. which is united to the cross is redemptive. Mm -hmm. So there's no way. Okay. That makes sense then. Yeah. It's a better explanation. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, That's best I got off the top of my head, but it's pretty good off the top of your head. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we've been doing the Lord's work for a while. Yep. Yeah, this has been fun, guys. One more topic, yeah. or do you want to call it night? Uh, why don't we make it a brief, fun one? I, uh, I, I, I can stay on another. Co- I, I still have to pray vespers and do a couple things. So, um, but uh, let's, yeah, let's let's go for another couple minutes. We gotta, vespers. we gotta, you gotta fun, you gotta fun. <laughs> you gotta. Yeah, I mean, um, the last James Bond movie is coming out. Uh, yeah, well, it's out. James, well, they're not gonna. They're not. It's not gonna be the last one, right? There's too much money. To be well, the last Daniel, Daniel Craig. Craig. Last Daniel Craig. That's last yeah. Daniel Craig. So, yeah. um, James Bond is an interesting character, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, for many mm-hmm. different reasons. Um, I actually watched the first one uh, with Sean Connery, Doctor No. Oh, that was, is that that any good? A, uh, it's interesting. It's um, it's there's a bunch of different things that could be said about it. Um, but it's any interesting. Good. <laughs> It's like, honestly, in some ways more innocent in the sense that um, Sean Connery's bond strangles someone and they cut away from it. They don't show that. Oh, and they also don't show any of the sex scenes. Really? Um, yeah. So they kind That's of like, good. they kind of like fall into the bed, even though there's a couple times when there's one scene in particular, I'm thinking Connery's like a kind of pushy about it. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, no, he's you, definitely right. You, yeah. you invited me over to my, your house. Like, obviously this means sex, right? <laughs> and you're just like, oh, Oh, oh really? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Kind of. yeah, there's a couple of times where you're just there's like, like I was admiring the view. And you're like, dude, like have you seen Dr. No Peter? Yeah, no. Yeah. I, Sean Connery's bond is notoriously a uh an abusive kind of misogynist. Like yeah. I mean, he's kind of an ant not great person to yeah <laughs> like yeah so the, i'm thinking of the one scene I'm, I'm still have to watch um the from russia with love which i'm gonna watch later um yeah. but i think most it's interesting about our generation is the bond we've quote unquote grown up with is the daniel craig bond which right. i think is in some ways at least comparing it to the sean connery one is a little more humanized and mm-hmm. so yeah. obviously not having obviously being able to speak authoritatively uh without having read anything which is right percent of learning what to do in grad school speaking authoritatively introduction i'll let me authority um like so let's say ian fleming doesn't write bond mm-hmm. but graham green or evelyn wah who are roughly contemporaries graham green would yeah, be great what yeah, do they how do they bond. write the character of bond and how is it different how is it similar I remember, as I mentioned before, I was talking with you guys, like, I remember reading Brideshead Revisited and all the characters were perfect angels. Um, so this isn't, uh, to, right, so this right, is, right, this right. isn't to say that Bond, if he's being written by Graham Green or by uh, Wa, is a perfect character. No, but they're no. both well, They're both coming from the same intellectual British milieu um, right. as Fleming, but they're both Catholic. So I'm not asking like what's a Catholic bond, but what is a bond when he's being written by a Catholic author and how is that similar or different? Um, so my first comment I'm going to make is I'm glad you mentioned Graham Greene because I like him better than Waugh. Right, we're going we're to end this spy theory. Uh, well, <laughs> just, I'm thinking of the power and the glory and yeah, the characters yeah. that he wrote in that book mm-hmm. and the suspense that he was able to write and like mm-hmm. how you really felt a like this really deep connection like 
that's the first thing I thought of was Power of Fantastic book. Um, I think that you will find somebody who is much more remorseful for the killings that they do. Mm-hmm. And they, and they do struggle. I think you'll find a little bit more of a conscience is something that you'll find. Not that they are angels, right? They're not perfect, but they definitely will struggle with um, mm-hmm. the choices that they've had. Like, and it'll probably be something where they, you know, were similar to Daniel Craigsbond, where he was kind of an orphan was kind of brought into it at a young age. I think that that would be kind of a similar storyline, but then they kind of re engage with their Catholic faith through meeting like a priest mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. or something where they have like this mm-hmm. St. Paul moment where they're knocked off their like horse or mm-hmm. motorcycle if it's, you know, a modern thing. And then <laughs> they, I, and then they're, uh, and then they kind of have a conversion. That's kind of how I would see like a Graham green style spy thriller that is like distinctly Catholic. Um, but so that, that's my opinion. Mm. Clark, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. Graham green notoriously can do, can do both. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. I've read, you know, so I've read, um, I've read all of Graham Greene's what are, I've read Graham Greene's, um, Catholic. He's got four books that are distinctly Catholic. Yeah. Uh, he's got, he's clearly got a Catholic mind and others, but, but he's got other books like he does. And he did write some spy books. Graham Greene did yeah. like, um, the quiet American. Um, yeah, uh, I have not, one. I have not read. What's that? That's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, well, how'd be unrealistic? The quiet American. <laughs> no, that's, that's part of the, that's part yeah. of the joke. Oh, really? Uh, the American, funny. the American in the book never shuts up. <laughs> that's no, that's part of the, that's part of the thing. That's, that's it. The, it's Graham Greene basically saying like Americans just come in and they're loud <laughs> cowboys who like think they know stuff and they get, and then like, he's kind of like, and sometimes they get people killed. And you're like, oh, because yeah. the quiet American happens in the Vietnam War. And it's it's a yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good it's a great read. But it is it is like like, oh, man, Graham Greene had some bad experiences with, <laughs> with Americans. Americans. <laughs> um, um, so uh, the human factor is another famous kind of uh, I have not read it, but it's my understanding that it's 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 the, the human factor from what I've read. I won't well, from what I've heard, actually, might be the most bond esque of his books. And that apparently does not have a particularly happy ending. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I, I, I do think Graham Greene could have written a great James Bond, though. I think that's definitely. I think I think Peter's right about that. Um, and I think he would have. And I think, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. He would have wrestled a lot more with the things that he does and the kind of person that he is. Um, he would have wrestled more with kind of, uh, you know spending some quality time with so many different women uh, and, and kind of like getting up and going. Right. Like, I mean, there's so there, mm-hmm. right. There's so many scenes where, right. He uh, over the course. And again, I've only, re- I've only seen the Daniel Craig movies, but right. I mean, he, he, uh, he definitely sleeps with a lot of women and oftentimes um, he, they just, they just, he just moves on. Like there's not really yeah. an emotional connection there. And, um, or they end up dead or they, well, that's yeah. actually, actually, I was watching this video on YouTube the other day, <laughs> the guy, the guy in the video was like, uh, he was breaking down the, all the Daniel Craig, James Bond movies, like in like two minutes or something. Uh-huh. And like, there was one point, there's one point like in Skyfall when he's in Skyfall when he's like, and then he sleeps with the, uh, and he sleeps with this, you know, this, this poor Asian. Oh, it was the spirit cutting him off. Yep. He's about to say something wrong. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Oh, is he back? Oh, he's back. He's back. back. 
Is that... Oh, you they lost me. Oh, okay. Yeah, we totally what was the last you. thing you said? Was uh, you were literally about to talk about um fornication. Oh, okay, got it. Cut you off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Holy Spirit cut me off, I guess. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So it's like basically what I was saying is that the surest way for a woman to to make to, the surest way to know that a woman is going to die in a Bond movie is whether or not she sleeps with James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. If she sleeps with James Bond, she almost certainly is going to die. And if she yeah. doesn't, um, it's only because she became a non-fact. It's only because you just never see her again. Oh, right, like in right. Quantum of Solace. <laughs> like, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of Quantum of Solace. I'm thinking of um, also um, Spectre. Yeah, Spectre, the first scene, the, the initial scene. No, not the initial. Oh, it's Skyfall, the initial scene. But then also in Spectre, it's not the initial scene. It's the, because uh, remember, he hops out the window. They're oh, the day of the, oh, oh, yeah, the day he just of the takes dead. off, right? That's what takes off. Yeah, 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 no, 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 no. They not, not in flagrante, yeah, flagrante delectum does not actually happen, but like no. they, they, they he, he just hops out the window. Yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> but the, um, there's the Italian woman, there's the Italian yeah. woman later yeah. in the movie where you're like, yeah. this, which, this which lady, movie is that again? That's Spectre. Spectre. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're like this, 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 this woman has been a widow for like, like what? Like all of 12, all 12 hours. <laughs> she at her husband's funeral today. What is wrong with you? Yeah. Um, Monica, Monica Bellucci played that woman who also played oh. Mary Magdalene in the passion of the Christ. No, I didn't realize. Yeah. That. yeah. So if you look, so if you rewatch Spectre, you see that the Italian woman, uh, who's the widow. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, it's Monica Bellucci, you know, 20 years, not no, 15 years older. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, wow. which is, which was, which is really funny, like kind of when you yeah. think about the like, man, I really was hoping she would learn more from her time on the set of Fashion of the Christ. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, Thomas, I want to hear. So we've talked a lot about Graham Greene mm-hmm. and who was a little bit grittier than. Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't read a, as much Graham Greene, though. So that's OK. That's, so but what does an Evelyn Waugh Bond look like? Is he does he wear spats and, you know, hang out in English manners? Or? No, he's probably like that guy who's like the bath den. <laughs> no. Whoever um with Evelyn Watt, I don't uh again, I've only read um I can only comment on um why am I messing with the name of it? Brideshead. Um Brideshead Revisited. Um Oh, you, you haven't know, read anything else by Wa? No, no, I haven't. I haven't gotten around to it. I've read some of um Green would did Graham Green write um was it the one where he's a, essentially a spy? Um uh, like the affair uncovered or something. The end of the affair. The end of the affair. Yeah, I've read some yeah. of that. He's a journalist. Same thing. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, not not much of a higher um social <laughs> occupation, shall we say? Um, but no, with um with so you think of I think you would have to think in terms of Charles Ryder in that situation um as Bond, but you would have to make the person more nostalgic um mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm more searching for a return to something in mm-hmm. as far as with um connery's bond i didn't see that at all um i it did not in any way shape or form at least from dr no still watch um from russia with love um but with you know with with craig's bond you saw that a little bit in was it skyfall it's correct mm-hmm. where they go yeah, back yeah. to his home yeah. you see yeah. that a little yeah, bit some reflectiveness but, but that doesn't play the central role within the um within the arc of the character yeah, it's kind of like right. filling in some of the backstory and kind right. of like a scottish home alone-esque sort of um, thing yeah. um i don't know i think you might have if if it's graham green writing in the same uh mind frame mm-hmm. as um 
as Bryce has revisited, you would have a bond who is searching more for a return to uh, some sort of past in which everything felt right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know how that would work out. And I don't know what that response would be. And I don't know if that's even overcomplicated character, because again, you got to remember, like, we're not listening to the other bonds that our former generations grew up with, um, with Connery. And then I forget who the second one was. Um, We're dealing with the Craig's bond, Craig's bond, who some people again are saying in like, Andrew, do you want me to spoil um, the last movie for you right now? No, no. Gonna kill you. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, Thomas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 a it all the reviews that I'm reading are that it's a much more humanized bond compared to the previous bonds. So I, like I don't it. know if we're dealing with an already quote unquote Graham Greenized yeah, bond sure, or quote unquote sure. already like Charles yeah. Ryder-esque. Yeah. And so I don't know if we're already dealing with it. And if our com- yeah. conversation was completely different if we were more in touch with the former bonds. But yeah. I still think that Daniel would, Craig would, stops a nuke. Okay. He like jumps up like Superman and stops a North Korean nuke and then throws oh it into the Pacific gosh. Ocean. Oh my gosh. I, then he I, I dies that, and it's over and credits roll. <laughs> I mean, unless they go like, unless there's like a massive character development in the last movie, I still think that we're dealing with a bond who is still almost soulless. I think that's one thing that we have. To, I think mm. that what I, He's almost like a machine in many ways where a bunch of things happen to him. And he's able to get back up and just keep doing what he's doing. Yeah. And there's no, like he gets shot and falls off a train and then he comes back mm-hmm. and there's not like a, like while they've humanized him quite a bit, he's still lacking a human element that I think yeah. is difficult to connect with. Him. There's no memento Mori. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I, and I think they are moving it's funny. I think they are moving in that direction though. I agree. Yeah. I agree with Cause I agree with you, Peter. I think that there's, yeah. cause like, cause I think that, and I actually think they did a good job in the first movie, Casino Royale, right. Of yeah, like, that was good. Casino yeah. Royale is like a really good movie. And um, like he, right. He, he like has, quits at the beginning of the franchise. He quits at the beginning of the franchise because like he becomes right. He has, right. He falls in love with Vespa. Yep. And, and he's like, and so I think they really did try and show like he actually did. He actually does kind of like, maybe I can yeah. leave this behind. Yeah, and then when she, when she yeah. dies, right. You see yeah. at the end of the movie, he's like really hardened again. Right. He kind right. of softens toward her. Um, he kind of softens toward her over the course of the film. I mean, right. Like, yeah. um, you know, I, I was not expecting when I, the first time I saw Casino Real, I was not expecting like like the scene where they have the fight with the african warlord right and then he goes to her room to make sure she's okay and she's like standing there she's in this gown she's in her gown and she's like in the shower and she's like shivering yeah and and he comes in and he like and she looks at him and she's she doesn't look at him she says to him like the blood won't come off the blood won't come off my fingers right and he gets in the shower and he puts his arm around her and he comforts her and nothing else happens. And they just right. sit there. They just sit there. The shower's going, just like drenching their clothes as they're just sitting there. And he's just holding her. And yeah. you're like, I was like, I'm like kind of feeling something right now. I'm like yeah. kind of feeling like a little bit emotional about this. This is a really moving scene. And so yeah. I think that what the first movie did very well is it kind of sh- it like showed that there was this side to him. But then when Vespa dies, he just like hardens and he becomes like 
much more robotic. And then in the second movie, he's just a robot all the way through Quantum of Solace. And then in Skyfall... Yeah, to the point where he, like, literally has a guy drink, like, oil in the desert. Yeah, Yeah. it's like, it's just like, what the... Yeah, that's a terrible movie anyway. But the point is, is that, is that, but then in Skyfall happens, right? And then in Skyfall, I agree with you that there is like he gets shot, and he comes back, and it's just like, and then, but then at the, by the end of Skyfall, you do kind of get a little bit of a softening where like because of his relationship with M, right? Where yes. he has this right. like father, uh, this mother son kind of relationship with her, and then Inspector, he's pretty hardened by the death of M, though he's like yeah. kind of she's died, this woman who he really was trying to love this second woman who he tried to love in a different way is yeah. now dead. Um, and so then by the end of Spectre though, he does seem to have really fallen in love with this, with this other girl. Right. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. and he kind of seems to want to make that work and he kind of wants to take a step back. So Which plays a key think, role. In this well, movie. I'm sure it does. I'm sure. It I does. think he did a really good job of like kind of highlighting all that. I think, when I think of Spectre, what bothered me about it is yeah. how quickly he went head over heels hmm. for that girl. I like, do agree was, with this. I do yeah. agree with this. That's a good critique. It's a good yeah. critique. I like. It, it felt a little bit rushed. It felt it a little bit rushed. Like he was willing to like, like, and you know, you have the scene where he promises her dad that he'll protect her. That's all right. Uh, on a sense of honor, you can protect somebody, but like, yeah. then you're like romantically involved with her and Ah, well, not, you know, this yeah. is tough. I, I feel like I'm trying to poke holes in it, but then they have that scene where they go to, was it, um, was it Algiers or Marrakesh? Or yeah. Something like Morocco. Something Morocco, like that. And they're like, and they have a, a period of time where she's like, don't touch me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then they kind of, and then she softens to him. So I guess there's mm-hmm. a little bit of time where they have like, a but it's month. not much more than a week. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah. Um, which so, for James Bond actually is a long time for a woman. Oh yeah, walk you Bond. Like, so. <laughs> like a week. What are you talking about? Right? <laughs> Waiting a week. <laughs> um, I think though the point that you forgot to make though, uh, Andrew, about um the Vespa and Vespa's death is it's not so much that Vespa dies; it's that Vespa also betrays him. Well, yeah, right. Well, right. That's, that's yeah, the key. Yeah, yeah. That's the key. That's add the key on. thing. That's yeah. the key. Add on. It's not just that she dies and it's tragic and it's sad because that would be all on itself. But it's that, like she also is like a double agent and he doesn't hasn't. Right. realized it and has to work well but she also that. leaves him the note at the end you know she leaves yeah. him the note at the end to let him know like she didn't want to do it and all this so yeah i mean you know yeah. okay you no you're right when you get the specter you realize it all have you have you seen specter yet thomas yeah no, no i've seen that i just it has oh, okay. has been a while it's been casino oh, rails yes. the I mean, one i've seen when you get to that you which i also didn't love this part of the movie where like they cut so have you guys seen the um benedict cumberbatch sherlock holmes mm-hmm. uh series so Moriarty, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Matt plays the villain in right. Specter, mm-hmm. and he's almost—he is basically playing Moriarty, where he's like, "I right. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like every woman yeah. that you've ever loved, I killed." And it's like, ah, I kind of liked it when it wasn't. What I liked about Bond is that he was in the service of the Queen, defeating the Queen's enemies, right? And I thought that was mm. cool. Like you're like, this is an actual spy. When you make the whole his whole thing about like one guy like mm-hmm. fighting him and like tinkering with him trying to get in his head where it's like which is very much like the sherlock holmes storyline mm-hmm. sure it's very i was like ah that's a little lazy in my opinion and it's not sure really 
as cool in my opinion. Interesting. Like, isn't yeah. it um isn't it the one of the the bad guys inspector says like i'm behind all the pain you've ever experienced or something yeah, it's like yeah. it's not so much christoph what's his name yeah it's it's not so much that like you know you're a spy and you're dealing with this but it's like this personal vendetta inspector and i kind of and i kind of interpreted some of that as lies like i could be wrong but like i interpreted some of that as like okay he's just trying to get in bond's head like yeah he's had a hand in all this crap but like yeah there's these different people who have all been part of his work organization okay fine right. but like um yeah I, okay you know i i can i can i can get behind I mean, some of that but right i mean i was like all right i like i enjoyed it but i also wasn't it, like i would have liked it to have gone a different way like, sure like it would sure. be cool to see a different like yeah but um yeah yeah interesting yeah. but good i i think they did a you know really good job i think i don't know if you were here last time but I like the people who were involved in it because um, the director, who's a woman or the producer, I forget she's producer or director. She's basically one of the executives of the films. She was asked, do you want to have a female bond? And her response was, I feel like women are much more interesting (laughs) than are far more interesting and they deserve a better character than James Bond. And that's a good line. That's a good line. I was like, yep, that's, that's a really good way of handling that question. It's like, yeah, Bond is at least Daniel Craig's Bond is an alcoholic kind of misogynist like Scottish guy who's not all that interesting as like an individual person like right yeah it's the situations cool, right it's the situations that, that people find interesting and his and ability and mm-hmm. yeah right like, right if you wanted to develop a really interesting female character who's in espionage I think it would be a completely different character but it'd be very yeah. good right right um, right hmm. I so, agree with that yeah yep so final question as we kind of tail off here who do you want to see as the next bond can't be it can't be tom cruise no <laughs> <Can't be Chris. laughs> um it's brad pitt <laughs> i've been interested in the idris elba um proposition mm-hmm. um i think that one is kind of an interesting one um i'd like your who was the one you suggested thomas uh tom hiddleston tom hiddleston i think would be a different approach i think that'd be good yeah um, how about Jeremy Clarkson? I think he should <laughs> more power. More power. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. What do you mean we haven't used all the nuclear power yet? More power. <laughs> more power. I, 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 it's kind of an interesting question because it's kind of he's a character who, um, he kind of needs to be like late thirties, early forties, like an older. You know what I mean? He's not like yeah. like you wouldn't want like. You wouldn't want like Tom Holland or something, right? Like how Tom Holland is like too young, you know, he's too boyish, like people wouldn't buy it. You know, you want somebody who's a little bit older. Um, is Tom, but um, what's that? Is Tom Holland even British? Tom Holland plays yeah. Spider-Man. Oh, that's right. He's oh, British. Yeah, I know that, but he is oh, British. British. Oh, he's okay. British. Yeah. yeah. Why does he, he have British. to be British? By the way, Sean Connery was Scottish. He wasn't British. Is that right? Well, so I, 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 that's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure who I would, I like the Idris Elba, I think would actually be really cool. I could see Idris Elba doing a really good job. He is a little bit older too, though. He's like that's, in his fifties now. That's the issue is I don't see him as being yeah. that much different than Daniel Craig. Yeah. Right? He's the right. same age. Ha- and yeah. even almost, I wouldn't say has the exact same personality, but would bring the same, would bring a similar. Yeah. Talent like kind yeah, of like yeah. a robot machine, yeah. killing machine kind of thing that Craig was. You know who like. I would have loved to have seen, you know, who I would have loved to have seen, but he's dead is the uh, <laughs> black Panther guy. Guy played black. Panther. Oh yeah. He would have been that great. Would have been, that would have been good. He would have been really good. Mm-hmm. um i can't remember his name now but uh 
he would have been really, yeah. really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think if there's, and he was, and he was British too, I believe, or at least, um, I'm not sure where he was from. Actually, I thought he was British, but maybe not. Um, anyway, so uh, I I actually do not have like, there's not any. I can't think of a candidate off the top of my head. Would Tom would Hardy be, work? Or would he I don't. Just I, be again, too I think weird. he's too old. I think he's too. Or would old. he just and be I, too weird? And I think he's he's kind of a funny looking guy. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't know. Um, James Bond has a twin, and he plays the twin. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so Chad Chadwick Boseman. Um, Chadwick Boseman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, 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 he's an American. He's an American. Uh, okay. He would have done a great job. He would have done a great job. What about um, again? If we're going to put include Americans in this, who is the one who played um, the main character in? Um, oh, I'm missing this one. Tenant. Oh, I haven't seen Tenant. I need to see Have that. Seen Tenant. The main no, character is, I, 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 I believe it's to, Denzel Washington's younger son. Or not. Is that right? It's his younger son. It's his son. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So people have, uh, there was interesting because people. Oh, John were, David Washington. Yeah, exactly. Okay. People were, people were looking at that movie and saying, wow, he could actually, because he kind of plays something of a spy in, in Tenet. They're saying, sure. like, wow, he could actually be a really good bond um, for that. And I'd have to agree with that, but I don't know. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still thinking it would be interesting to see a bond that isn't because Daniel Craig is a heavy set, you know, it's, he's a bigger dude. Right. It'd be interesting to see someone who's less physically intimidating and yeah. maybe a tad bit more brainy yeah, and, and kind of quote unquote clever than Craig's because Craig could probably like run through three cement walls and just continue going. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting yeah. to see someone who's a little bit more sly shall we yeah, say yeah, yeah i'd, be, I'd yeah. be curious to see what that would look like and because of that that's why i would kind of say eh, i'd like to see tom hiddleston but i don't know if he's I'd been kind of quote corrupted to see by somebody Loki, but uh, yeah yeah i so. like tom i like the tom hiddleston thing i like that okay. um but whatever there's a lot of good so, options a lot of good options. tyson fury the boxer let's get tyson fury through titanium walls man <laughs> the way my brother de- we should probably wrap it up soon but the, the way my brother described tyson fury is like he's built like larry the cucumber i love it i love great. it yeah but to be that tall and big didn't be that good at boxing he's a, he's amazing um that's crazy kind of wow weird, but, all right well Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta run. But this has been awesome, gentlemen. Yeah, it's good. Thanks yeah, for coming thank on. You. Was this been your fifth time? Third time? Uh fourth, fourth time? or fifth. Fourth or fifth. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. good. Yeah. Quality episode. Sweet. All right. Well, All right. as always. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.